to let you know that we have a Patreon account. And we've mentioned it before on the show and you're probably like, what the heck is that? Patreon is a website that gives you some rewards and perks while helping support your favorite podcast. Um, That would be us, Murderous Roots, don't forget. And you can do this for as little as $3. You'll have access to bonus episodes when we release them, as well as a thank you note and Murderous Roots sticker. We hope you check it out at patreon.com slash Murderous Roots. Thanks, guys. Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Welcome back. Well, hi, everyone. This is Denise Gilhart. I am a genealogist hoping to get hired to help solve real crimes using genetic genealogy someday. I can always dream, right? You know, dreams are what keep us going, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So this is, hi, I'm Zelda, as always, and I am (laughs) uh, a good friend and supporter of Denise's work. Uh, And I come up with the fun factoids that everybody tells me I get wrong. And Denise, I really hope you cut a bunch of this out because I realized I'm rambling for a moment. I so, like it when you ramble. It's so rare. <laughs> Don't be sarcastic. Well, it does not become you. <laughs> I have some news, Zelda. Guess what? What? Tell me more. We have our very first patron on Patreon. No way. Yes. No way. Like, I'm oh excited. my gosh, we got a patron. I got the email. I was all excited. Um, okay, so, so I owe someone a thank you note is what I Yes. Do. Okay. But she didn't give us her address. So I've sent her an email and I'm hoping to hear from her soon. But in the meantime, we could do a shout out to Mary Storm for becoming our very first patron, which makes her our favorite patron right now. <gasps> yes. Oh my gosh. And the name's great. We should probably yep. put it on a, on a wall somewhere, you know? Yeah, that would be awesome. You know, maybe like right over my shoulder. so how have you been actually it's been a really good couple of weeks and things are going great which is you know one of those moments where you kind of wait for the other shoe to drop but really it's been fantastic a friend of mine a close friend of mine for many years came out from Pasadena California because my life and work and everything was super overwhelming Mm -hmm. and she came to help me finish unpacking my house and organizing I and see the pictures behind we you. We have finally hung pictures up. And so I'm just like feeling like I can actually accomplish things now. And so I'm kind of over the moon. How about you? I'm pretty good. We had a fantastic vacation. Uh, and got, I was, go ahead. Yeah. The kids, they, they had a blast and I have not seen my oldest that happy in a long time. Oh, so wow. it was amazing. I even drove them back by my old apartment in Hackensack, New Jersey. Oh my gosh. Well, I love there. watching the photos on Facebook and I was living vicariously through you. Those were beautiful. I had no idea the East Coast could be so pretty because I've only been there to the cities. Oh, so yeah. it's so pretty. It's gorgeous. And But I, I drove Chris through New York City, through Manhattan. I shouldn't say New York City because I only went through Manhattan Island. Uh-huh. We, we entered from the George Washington bridge and we exited okay. via, um, I think the Lincoln tunnel, but mm-hmm. we, you know, we, we, we head down and then we cross over so we could go get to the park. Um, mm-hmm. so it was around like 80th or something like that, but then headed down and went through Broadway and got to times square and back. And the whole time I could see his knuckles were turning white. He was a little, <gasps> you made out. him drive. You made him. I, drive? No, I drove. Oh, okay. His knuckles were like white. He was freaked out by all the cars. And he he told me afterwards, I don't like New York. I'm good. Never going there ever, ever. That is what was the problem? I mean, I'm like, I was the one driving and he goes, he's not a city driver. There's too many people. Yeah. But he liked Boston. Yeah. Well, now he's just weird. So. Yeah, I, we have a special guest and I'll have to explain something to him. My, my, my husband grew up in a, well, he didn't grow up in a small town. He actually grew up in a, a, a city, but then when he learned to drive, it was in a small town and he never had to live in a big town. So he is not comfortable driving in cities. Mm-hmm. So all the city driving was me. <laughs> and it had been a while since I drove in, on, in Manhattan. 
and uh-huh. this was a lot bigger vehicle than I had when I was in my twenties. Oh, so I took a little adjustment so... at first, but then I, it kicked back in. I, that's so funny. and I got charged up. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I love this city. Oh, New York's great. New York yeah. is so great. I mean, having lived in Chicago, I can honestly say, I don't know that I could handle living in New York city, but gosh, it's a wonderful place to visit. So, yeah. and speaking of New York city, we're talking about somebody very cool who is a New Yorker mm-hmm. today. We are. She is known for Stonewall. She even has, I believe it's like a statue or some sort of monument to herself in the area of Stonewall now, Marsha P. Johnson. Oh, the crowd goes wild. <laughs> and even yeah. more exciting than that, though, I, yeah. I've got to thank somebody. Um, I want to thank Al Michaels. He's the nephew of Marsha via her sister, Jean. He helped me by answering me lots of, answering me, answering lots of questions and helping me out. You know, I reached out to him because I was hitting all these walls and I was getting confused. And I thought there's no way he's going to answer because he hadn't been on the system for like three to 12 months, according to that. I'm like, oh, there's no way he's going to see this, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Well, sure enough, within like 24 hours, he sent me his phone number. I called him. We talked. And guess what? He's here with us right now. <gasps> no way. Yeah. I have to act surprised, but I can totally see him on the Zoom call. Yeah. So. Your acting is really bad though. So, you know, this is true. Okay. That's why I don't like living at it. Yeah. But you know, at one point we even got a conference call with a woman in South Carolina who's related to him and, you know, he's done a good job on his tree. It's not his fault that things get weird and odd and get confusing. (laughs) Which Uh it's strange how many family trees do. I mean, this is, you know, part of the fun for it, isn't it? Fun of it, isn't it, Denise? Of you, you know, digging out these things that seem super confusing. So thank you so much for joining us, Al. We're happy to have you. Thank you for having me. Al, do you want to talk a little bit about how you you became involved? Because, I mean, you have lots of relatives and um, there aren't a lot of people who are doing a lot of in-depth work on Marsha P. Johnson's life. So how are you? What about this interest you? Uh, I think basically Marsha pulled me into this work. And I'm, what I mean by that is uh, being around Marsha, you know, when I, when I was around Marsha, I was young, you know, when Marsha mm-hmm. in the prime years, I was, you know, just reaching my teen years or I was just getting out of high school. So when you're at age, you're trying to find yourself, you're doing other things. So I really didn't even know anything about Marsha P. Johnson. Mm-hmm. I knew about Malcolm Michaels, who's my uncle, and we called him Uncle Mike. So it wasn't until actually after Marsha's death that every time I go to New York, you're Marsha's nephew, and people would start telling me stories. And then mm-hmm. I would start reading about the things about Stonewall. I didn't even know about Stonewall. I didn't know. Wow. Marcia mentioned, she, she would mention it to me. Mm-hmm. But I'm young and, you know, I'm not real. I'm listening. But it, And then some mm-hmm. of the stories were so fantastic. I'm like, this can't be true. This is Marsha just going on one of the Marsha things. <laughs> Everything Marsha said. I mean, from the famous people she met to hanging out with Andy Warhol to, oh, to yeah. being in films and on album covers and this famous person, it all turned out to be true. It all mm-hmm. turned out to be true. And then I became amazed with it. And then I started studying it. And then I started uh, finding out what Marsha's about and what Marsha actually went through. You know, the yeah, hardship, mm-hmm. you know, the sleeping on the street, not having enough food, but yet start, starting STAR and other organizations with Sylvia and feeding people mm-hmm. and holding people. And so uh, I said, you know, I got to continue this. This this is, you know, this is all good stuff. And this is stuff that, you know, Everyone says LGBTQT rights. Marsha was about civil rights, all people's rights. Mm-hmm. Of course, she was about the LGBTQT community. That was her community. But she would say to you, you know, she was about civil rights. And it was the time at the height of the civil rights movement. So yeah. Yeah, Stonewall actually paved the way in some way for the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, that's what got me in and... Uh, then I, uh, two years ago, I, I was doing this all by myself. I was representing Marsha every time there was a media event or uh, something like that. And then uh, my young family were asking, who's this Marsha? Who's this? Who's who? And then I had to, I said, like, you don't know. And so we started this family foundation for the younger people in my family to get together with and, and continue the legacy. That's that fantastic. is amazing. Wow. 
Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. And thank you in advance for sharing more stuff as we go, go through. But I do think that we need to talk a bit about LGBTQ plus history before we can even really begin to understand, you know, the audience can begin to understand who Marsha P. Johnson was. Mm-hmm. Because she wasn't just brave. She wasn't just groundbreaking. And her story can't really be sanitized down to some kind of hero from a novel. She struggled every single day. She was a lot of times homeless. She supported herself and others through sex work. She was arrested many times and physically assaulted even more often. Marsha Johnson had a front row seat to the very worst of humanity. And still, this is the part that gets me about her story, is that she still had such a love for people of all kinds and made sacrifices every single day to help the people around her and to help every person be recognized as a human being. So although life as a person who is LGBTQ plus is not a bed of roses today, it used to be a downright horror show. And that's the world Marsha Johnson came out to. In New York City and in many other places, it was illegal to demonstrate any sort of homosexual behavior, which included dressing as a different sex, any public displays of affection, even dancing. Bars known to be frequented by gays and lesbians were often raided by the police and the patrons violently assaulted. These victims of police brutality would not find any sympathy from the general public and sometimes not even their families. And in fact, most approved of police tactics to oppress these undesirables. I'm using like quote, quote marks. You can't see that because I keep forgetting this is not a visual podcast. (laughs) So much like today, being a teen who is LGBTQ plus was the right road to get kicked out of your home and live on the streets right for exploitation. And into the 1990s, the AIDS epidemic shortened the average lifespan of men under age 65 to less than 50. So just a little bit of background. Now, as Al had shared, you know, uh, Marsha Johnson was born Malcolm Michaels and was and she was born on August 24th, 1945 in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Denise is going to talk about the family in general. So I'm going to kind of swim over that a little bit. Um, except that they were raised in the Mount Tumen African Methodist Episcopal Church. Commenting on this upbringing, Johnson was quoted as saying, I got married to Jesus Christ when I was 16 years old, still in high school. And she remained religious her entire life, especially those years toward the end. In a 1992 interview, so this was before she passed away in 92, Johnson described being the young victim of rape by a 13-year-old boy. So after graduating from Edison High School, which is now apparently the Thomas A. Edison Career and Technical Academy in Elizabeth, she graduated in 1963. Johnson left home for New York City with $15 and a bag of clothes. Johnson did a brief stint in the Navy. Now, I only saw that one place. So I'm hoping, Denise, do you have more information on that? No, but I did see a picture, but I'm sure Al has more, right? Yep, true story. I think Marsha lasted three months before they kicked Uh her out. Hey, she lasted longer than I would have. <laughs> so props to her. So they kicked her out. Do you know why? Uh, I get. I think it had something to do with uh, uh, homosexuality or with uh, okay. you know, that type of thing. Even okay. even back then, even in the service, if you even showed that type of uh, you know behavior, yeah. they mean you were, but they didn't. They didn't tolerate that at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew that. I just I wasn't sure wow. if it was that or something else. Wow. Some people would continue to hide themselves, but Marsha doesn't seem like the type who ever hid. Right, right. That, I think that was the problem. Marsha wasn't hiding, so. Okay. Well, in 1966, Marsha moved to Greenwich Village, and then she was hanging out with the street hustlers near Howard Johnson's 6th Avenue and 8th Street, and her life changed. Johnson came out and said, my life has been built around sex and gay liberation, being a drag queen, and she became a sex worker. Johnson initially used the moniker Black Marsha, but later decided on the drag queen name Marsha P. Johnson, getting Johnson from the restaurant Howard Johnson's on 42nd Street, stating that the P stood for pay it no mind, and used the phrase sarcastically when questioned about gender, saying it stands for pay it no mind. Apparently, she said the phrase once to a judge who was so amused by it that he released her from all charges (laughs) and let her go. Johnson identified as gay, as a transvestite, and as a queen or a drag queen, just depending on the circumstances. And of course, the language around this has evolved a lot in the last 50 years. Oh, yeah. So the words, you know, like transgender 
that wasn't even really used back then. And then other people are saying, well, really, it's probably more accurate to call gender nonconforming. But language we would use today would probably be along the lines of transgender. That was not language that she would have used. So she seemed to have found joy as a self-made drag queen of Christopher Street, infamous for her unique design and costume creation. And some phenomenal costumes. (laughs) I mean, some of these pictures, I mean, she was... 100% this beautiful creation of, there was a mix of glamour and art and creativity. She quickly became a prominent fixture in the LGBTQ plus community, serving as a drag mother, helping homeless and struggling LGBTQ youth. Marsha was extremely successful and toured the world as a successful drag queen with the hot peaches. She was quoted as, I was no one, nobody from Nowheresville until I became a drag queen. That's what made me in New York. That's what made me in New Jersey. That's what made me in the world. Now, Marsha Johnson struggled with mental illness. And when it was bad, it was really, really bad. She became violent and volatile and often ended up in either jail or a psych hospital until friends could get her bailed out. And let's face it, mental health support was not a priority in this country, and it still isn't. So she'd be able to keep it together until the next time she had an episode. And I think about this because imagine what she could have accomplished with proper mental health treatment, Mm -hmm. you know, like if she had proper medication, if she didn't have to worry about being homeless, if she'd had, you know, had been able to do the things that we kind of take for granted. So anyway, just a little pin of thought right there. But despite all of this, she had a profound way of putting others' needs before her own. Marsha Johnson remained in constant communication with her family and often returned home to Elizabeth for holidays. During her commute home, Marcia would invite wayward people to join her for a hot meal with her family. Al, I can't imagine but that you have a couple stories about her bringing friends home for the holidays. Those are my most memorable, my, my greatest memories. I mean, those stories, because like I said, I'm a little kid. Uh-huh. We're out in, the street, out in the street playing with my friend, and then this woman turns the corner, you know, with all these beads and the squirrels in her hat and foxes and a meat coat and a, I mean just looking like and so the grown-ups who would sit on the porch back in the day you know they want to sit on the porch and mm-hmm. about the kids playing the street they would be like oh my gosh who's that woman oh she looks like you know and all the kids would say oh that ain't no woman that's uncle mikey you know that's how they <laughs> knew marcia you know and then marcia would give out the trinkets she would give out the little toys the bubble gum the candy Make sure every kid got something, you know. And then my grandmother would be on the porch, and my grandmother would be like, "Mikey, get in this house and change your clothes." Now, the story is that uh, Marsha's father despised Marsha, and and I'm gonna, I'm not gonna say he despised her, but he wasn't happy with uh, Marsha's choice. Mm-hmm. Okay. My grandmother was on the fence, you know. It was back in the '60s, you know, early '60s, and it was a different community, a different culture back then. Right. So she didn't despise Marsha or hate Marsha. She didn't understand. She had no idea of the concept of transvestite or drag queen or or, or, or gender. And she had no idea what it was. All she knew her son was dressed in women's clothes. But I can tell you this, over the years, like I said, I remember that from when I was a small kid. As the years went on, she became open to it and she embraced them and, and let them just be let her, let Marsha be who she wanted to be, and Marsha could come dressed in drag, and my, and my grandmother would say a word to her, you know, just welcome her in the house, and I got a little off track, but the stories are, Marsha would come around, or my grandmother would say, are you coming home, Marsha? She would say, yes, I'm coming home for Christmas, and uh, she said, okay, Marsha, so by the time Marsha got to our front door, there would be 20 people in a line, lined up behind Marsha, open, I would open the door, and these people would start streaming in. <laughs> and my grandmother would say, Marsha, who are these people? I don't know them, but they're coming for dinner. <laughs> these are my friends now. I met them on the tra- I met them on the train. I met them, I met them on the street. I met them. We would have like Thanksgiving would, would last like a week at my house because we would have people sleeping on the floor, sleeping on the front porch, just hanging out until they wanted to hang out. This it, it, it was like Woodstock every every day and when they came. <laughs> It was incredible. That's pretty fabulous, actually. And and you know what? That's why I have this attitude. Like, I don't, 
you know, with people saying, oh, this and that, and people being homophobic and this and that. Everybody was people. Everybody treated mm-hmm. everybody the same way. There was never any animosity, never any any phobia, nothing. It was just people who needed things. My grandmother fed them. They would they would read and, and with, with me, Sylvia and my uncle would come out and jump rope and, and, and Marshall would jump rope with us. His friends would come out and hang with us and bring the guitars and sing. It, it was like it was amazing. It was amazing. And so I'm proud. I'm glad that I grew up like that because that that's something that no one else is so unique. It's so unique. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I had that experience. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> That's, you know, the sense of family suddenly grows, right? When you have someone like that in your family who is just everybody's brother and sister, you know, I think that's amazing. Or everybody is a brother and sister. So, you know, actually it's those kinds of things, her forthright nature and her enduring strength that led her to speak out against injustices that she saw while she was living there in New York City. And this came to a head in July of 1969. So this leads us to the Stonewall Riots. Now, again, here's a little bit of history. And I did steal a lot of this from history.com. So there's a whole big article on it there. So before the 1960s, LGBTQ plus individuals flocked to gay bars and clubs, places of refuge where they could express themselves openly and socialize without worry. However, the New York State Liquor Authority penalized and shut down establishments that served alcohol to known or suspected GBTQ plus individuals arguing that the mere gathering of homosexuals was disorderly. Yeah, too much fun, (sighs) too much fun. Gotta stop it. Thanks to activist efforts, these regulations were overturned in 1966, and these patrons could then be served alcohol. Mm -hmm. But engaging in gay behavior, in quotes, in public, (laughs) like holding hands, kissing, dancing with someone of the same sex was still illegal. So the police... Exactly right. How dare you have fun? Again, too much fun. So police harassed gay bars unabated, and many bars still operated without liquor licenses, in part because they were owned by the mafia. Mm. So by the mid-1960s, the Genovese crime family controlled most of Greenwich Village gay bars. In 1966, they purchased the Stonewall Inn, at the time a straight quote-unquote bar and restaurant, They sort of renovated it and they reopened it the next year as a gay bar. Now, the Stonewall Inn was registered as a type of private bottle bar, which didn't require a liquor license because patrons were supposed to bring their own liquor. Mm -hmm. Club attendees had to sign their names in a book upon entry to maintain the club's false exclusivity. The Genovese crime family bribed New York's sixth police precinct to ignore the activities occurring within the club. So since there was no police interference, the crime family just kind of ran it however. So there wasn't a fire exit or running water, clean toilets, you know, Lord palatable drinks, you know, food, you know, a little iffy, but that's just fine. What's even more exciting is the mafia reportedly blackmailed the club's wealthier patrons who wanted to keep their sexuality a secret. Ah, uh-huh. that's what was in it for them. Because I'm like going, the mafia was supporting a gay club. I mean, I didn't think of them as being open-minded, but that makes more sense now. Well, and they were also able to stat- they were also able to sell alcohol too, which they watered down. Um, now they were doing it without a license, but right. they were still selling it. So anyway, despite all of this, Stonewall Inn quickly became an important Greenwich Village institution. It was large, pretty cheap to enter. It welcomed drag queens which was really unusual because at that time, drag queens were not considered part of the mainstream gay culture. And so they were like harassed by gay people as well as straight people. And it was a nightly home for many runaways and homeless gay youths who panhandled or shoplifted to afford the entry fee. And it was one of the only gay bars left that actually allowed dancing. Now, could you imagine a gay bar without dancing? I mean- (laughs) I'm sorry, but, you know, I can't even picture it. But, of course, raids were still a fact of life. But usually the corrupt cops would tip off the mafia run bars before they occurred, which allowed the owners to stash the alcohol and hide other illegal activities. In fact, the NYPD had stormed Stonewall Inn just a few days before the riot-inducing raid. But when police raided Stonewall Inn on the morning of June 28th, it came as a surprise. The bar wasn't tipped off this time. Armed with a warrant, police officers entered the club, roughed up the patrons, Mm -hmm. and finding bootlegged alcohol, arrested 13 people, 
including employees and people violating the state's gender appropriate clothing statute. So female officers would take suspected cross-dressing patrons into the bathroom to check their sex. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, fed up with constant police harassment and social discrimination, angry patrons and neighborhood residents hung around outside of the bar rather than disperse, becoming increasingly agitated as the events unfolded and people were aggressively manhandled. At one point, an officer hit a lesbian, Stormy Delavery. I'm going to say that again. At one point, an officer hit a lesbian, Stormy Delavery, over the head as he forced her into the police van. She shouted to onlookers to act, inciting the crowd to begin to throw things at the police. Within minutes, a full-blown riot involving hundreds of people began. The police, a few prisoners, and a village voice writer barricaded themselves in the bar, which the mob and or the police, it's a little sketch, attempted to set on fire after breaching the barricade repeatedly. The fire department and a riot squad were eventually able to douse the flames, rescue those inside Stonewall, and disperse the crowd. But the protests, sometimes involving thousands of people, continued in the area for five days, flaring up at one point after the Village Voice published its account of the riots. But where was Marsha Johnson in all of this? Well, to back up a moment, Johnson was one of the first drag queens to go to the Stonewall Inn after they began allowing women and drag queens inside. As we said before, it's just for gay men. Mm -hmm. While the first two nights of rioting were the most intense, the clashes with police would result in a series of spontaneous demonstrations and marches through the gay neighborhoods of Greenwich Village for roughly a week afterwards. Now, Johnson's been named, along with Zezu Nova and Jackie Harmana, by a number of the Stonewall veterans interviewed by David Clark in his book Stonewall, The Rights That Sparked the Gay Revolution, as being three individuals known to have been in the vanguard of the pushback against police at the uprising. Johnson herself, though, denied starting the uprising. In 1987, Johnson recalled arriving at around two o'clock that morning, that the riots had already started by that time, and that the Stonewall building was on fire after, she says, police set it on fire. Johnson also confirmed not being present at the Stonewall Inn when the rioting broke out, but instead had heard about it, went to get Sylvia Rivera, who was at Park Uptown sleeping on a bench, to tell her about it. However, many have corroborated on the second night Johnson climbed up a lamppost and dropped a bag with a brick on it down on a police car, shattering the windshield. So, Al, did you hear this story from Marsha? She would tell me stories about the Stonewall, and I can't honestly say I remember that particular story. But but I remember her uh, saying in the interviews and stuff like that, that she was not there on the first night. and She didn't get there at 2 o'clock, and she did go get Sylvia. So... That part of the story about she threw the rock and cracked the mirror, that's, I think that's just an urban legend. Yeah. But uh, she was very active those the, the, the nights, you know, later that night and then the, the nights after that, as far as the, the, the riots were going. Okay. Yeah, that seems to be what the, the corroboration has been. You know, there's there's a few, as you had mentioned, just kind of rumors about some dramatic things that happened at the beginning that they named um, Marsha in, but there's like one person who said it, it spread, and everybody else like, yeah, no, it didn't really happen like that. Right. Um, so facts are important, everyone. Dear listeners, right. facts are important. <laughs> yes. Following the Stonewall Uprising, Johnson joined the Gay Liberation Front and was active in the GLF Drag Queen Caucus. On the first anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion, on June 28, 1970, Johnson marched in the first gay pride rally, then called the Christopher Street Liberation Day. One of Johnson's most notable direct actions occurred in August 1970, staging a sit-in protest at Weinstein Hall at New York University alongside fellow GLF members after administrators canceled a dance when they found out it was sponsored by gay organizations. Sure, I know, right? Like, now mm-hmm. we would be, are you kidding me? <laughs> but, you well, know. It still happens now. but It still happens at high schools, but it still happens. Yeah. The two of them became a visible presence at gay liberation marches and other radical political actions. In 1973, Johnson and Rivera were banned from participating in the gay pride parade by the gay and lesbian committee who were administering the event, saying they weren't going to allow drag queens at their marches, claiming they were giving them a bad name. Their response, and I love this, was to march defiantly ahead of the parade. During a gay rights rally at New York City Hall in the 1970s, photographed by Diana Davies, a reporter asked Johnson why the group was demonstrating. Johnson shouted into the microphone, 
darling, I want my gay rights now. During another incident around this time, Johnson was confronted by police officers for hustling in New York. When the officers attempted to perform an arrest, Johnson hit them with a handbag, which contained two bricks. When asked by the judge for an explanation for hustling, Johnson claimed to be trying to secure enough money for a tombstone for Johnson's husband. During a time when same-sex marriage was illegal in the U.S., the judge asked what happened to this alleged husband. Johnson responded, pig shot him. So, Al, do you know about this? Because I see just that amount of information in various articles, but there's no real details about it. Did, was there a person that Marsha Johnson considered her husband? Not that I know. I don't know anything okay. about that. Okay, so she was just trying to make a point, it sounds like. Perhaps. Okay. So she was initially sentenced to 90 days in prison for the assault, but her attorney eventually convinced the judge that Bellevue Hospital would be a little more suitable. So with Rivera, Johnson established Star House, a shelter for homeless gay and trans youth in 1970, and paid rent for it with money they made themselves as sex workers. While the house was not focused on performance, Johnson was a drag mother of Star House in the long-standing tradition of chosen family in the Black and Latino LGBTQ plus community. Johnson worked to provide food, clothing, emotional support, and a sense of family for the young drag queens, trans women, gender nonconformists, and other gay street kids living on the Christopher Street docks or in their house on Lower East Side of New York. While the original location of Star House was evicted in 1971 and the building destroyed, the household existed in different configurations and at different locations over the years. Between 1980 and Johnson's death in 1992, Johnson lived with a friend, Randy Wicker, who had invited Johnson to stay the night one time when it was very cold out, about 10 degrees Fahrenheit, and Marcia just never left. When Wicker's lover, David, became terminally ill with AIDS, Johnson became his caregiver. After visiting David and other friends with the virus in the hospital during the AIDS pandemic, Johnson, who was also HIV positive, became committed to sitting with the sick and dying as well as doing street activism with AIDS activist groups, including ACT UP. Now, some more history. In 1992, gay bashing was epidemic in New York. (laughs) It was epidemic across the U.S. Uh, My own little brother, it was in 1990 when he himself got the crap beaten out of him uh, for daring to be gay in Indiana. Mm. So according to Matt Foreman, the former director of the Anti-Violence Project, Anti-LGBT violence was at a peak. That year, we had 1,300 reports of bias crime, and 18% of those were based on violence perpetrated by police. Wow. By police, the people who should be protecting people, right? You would think. Yeah. It was an unrelenting wave of attacks. In response, marches were organized, and Johnson was one of the activists who marched in the streets demanding justice. Only weeks later, Johnson would also turn up dead under similar circumstances. Near the time of Johnson's death in 1992, Randy Wicker said Johnson was increasingly sick and in a fragile state. However, none of Johnson's friends or relatives believed Johnson was suicidal. So, the day of her death. Shortly after the 1992 Gay Pride Parade, Johnson's body was discovered floating in the Hudson River. Police initially ruled the death a suicide, but Johnson's friends and other members of the local community insisted Johnson was not suicidal and noted that the back of Johnson's head had a massive wound. Seems suspicious. Mm -hmm. Um, Her death occurred during a time when anti-LGB violence was at a peak, as we discussed. And as she was one of the activists who'd been drawing attention to this epidemic of violence against the community, demanding justice for victims and an inquiry on how to stop the police violence, Johnson had been speaking out against the dirty cops and elements of organized crime that many believed responsible for some of these assaults and murders. Oh, Al, are you trying to get my attention? And had even voiced the concern that some of what Randy Wicker was stirring up and pulling Johnson into could get you murdered. This added to the suspicions of foul play and possible murder. Johnson's body was cremated and following a funeral at a local church and a march down 7th Avenue, friends released Johnson's ashes over the Hudson River off the Christopher Street off the Christopher Street piers. Police allowed 7th Avenue to be closed while Johnson's ashes were carried to the river. After the funeral, a series of demonstrations and marches to the police precinct took place to demand justice for Johnson. According to Sylvia Rivera, 
Their friend Bob Poehler believed Johnson had committed suicide due to an ever-increasing fragile state, which Rivera herself disputed, claiming she and Johnson had made a pact to cross the River Jordan, a.k.a. the Hudson River, together. Those who were close to Johnson considered the death suspicious. Many claimed that while Johnson did struggle mentally, this did not manifest itself as suicidal ideation. Randy Wicker later said that Johnson may have hallucinated and walked into the river or may have jumped into the river to escape harassers, but stated that Johnson was never suicidal. So several people came forward to say they'd seen Johnson harassed by a group of thugs who also had robbed people. According to Wicker, a witness saw a neighborhood resident fighting with Johnson on July 4th, 1992. During the fight, he used a homophobic slur and later bragged to someone at a bar he'd killed a drag queen named Marsha. The witness said that when he tried to tell police what he had seen, his story was ignored. Now, are we surprised? Are we surprised? We're not surprised. No. No. Other locals stated later that law enforcement was not interested in investigating Johnson's death, stating the case was about a gay black man and wanting little to do with it at the time. In December 2002, so we're talking 10 years later, a police investigation resulted in the reclassification of Johnson's cause of death from suicide to undetermined. Well, then... Another 10 years go by, former New York politician Tom Dwayne fought to reopen the case because usually when there's a death by suicide, the person usually leaves a note. She didn't leave a note. In November 2012, activist Mariah Lopez succeeded in getting the New York Police Department to reopen the case as a possible homicide. In 2016, Victoria Cruz of the Anti-Violence Project also tried to get Johnson's case reopened because they reopened it, but they didn't really do a whole lot. They just kind of sat on it. And she succeeded in gaining access to previously unreleased documents and witness statements. She sought out new interviews with witnesses, friends, other activists, and police who had worked the case or who had been on the force at the time of Johnson's death. In August 2021, activists put up a memorial to Marsha Johnson and Christopher Park. The city had been saying for years they were going to, but they kept putting it off. So this group of folks said, screw this, we're going to do it ourselves. So they put it up, it is an unauthorized statue, and they're just kind of like, whatever you know <laughs> and i'm just like so like yes this is this is great well so, you know my, my sister and my niece went to new york city recently mm-hmm. and my niece got a picture next to marsha p johnson oh that's and, cool. and my, my niece is also in the lgbtq community so i know that that's meant really something cool. to her that's really cool and the bust of marsha johnson has this quote which i will close my part of this presentation with History isn't something you look back at and say it was inevitable. It happens because people make decisions that are sometimes very impulsive and of the moment, but those moments are cumulative realities. And that concludes my part of the over- overview. Al, I hope you've got stuff to say. Uh, real quick, as far as the uh, statues and stuff, uh, like you said, New York City, I think two years ago, contacted us. We we're a big part of it. And they were supposed to do a statue of Marsha and Sylvia. And that was under the uh, the previous mayor's administration. Mm-hmm. Never came to fruitation. You know I mean? It, it never, it just disappeared. You know, that was the end of that. New York State this year, just this year, turned uh, the Brooklyn, the park in Brooklyn, uh, a state park in Brooklyn is now the Marsha P. Johnson State Park. That's I awesome. love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it's in Brooklyn, so we ever get a chance. I mean, it's it's a beautiful park, right on the right on the waterfront, right on the river, and everything. So that's the Marshby John. And then uh, Fire Island just dedicated a fountain, a water fountain, in a whole area to Marshby Johnson. Uh, they just oh, did I that love that. In the past week, actually, within the past week. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic news! Yeah, did so you get to cool. go to that dedication? Uh, I didn't go to the Fire Island dedication one because Fire Island is like in the middle of nowhere and I had no way to get there. But True. the uh, <laughs> the 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 park uh, dedication, which it hasn't officially been dedicated, but it's been like a, a soft opening. We've been involved along with the community from day one as far as what's going into the park to make the park uh martial like. You know what I mean? To make sure mm-hmm. that it's not just because what they wanted to do actually was just slap the name Marsha P. Johnson on the park and say, you know, we did something. But we said, no, we're not having that. You need, this part needs to be bright and have flowers and, and, and show the charisma and, and of Marsha P. Johnson. This part needs to be Marsha P. Johnson. So, and mm-hmm. the community chimed in and said the same thing. And uh, 
So we're still working to get all that done. They're putting all kinds of stuff. It's supposed to be a hard opening in September. So I'll let you guys know. Oh, fantastic. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, no problem. Yeah. You know, the one thing that's always struck me about um, the Marsha P. Johnson death is how they would think it was suicide. Like mm-hmm. this, she just put herself in the water to drown. I mean, what was the thinking on that? I've never yeah. understood that. I mean, mm-hmm. it just seemed lazy. Yeah. Did you guys watch the Life and Death of Marsha P. Johnson, the film itself? Mm-mm. I haven't. I've seen parts of it. I have not finished it yet. Okay. Because that whole thing was a... Uh, uh was a was a, a a byproduct of them reopening the case and uh, the actually the doctor who did the autopsy i think jfk and mlk is the doctor who did the autopsy okay. autopsy on marsha and one of the things we were concerned about as a family was everyone saying oh we saw blood one guy we saw blood on the thing and he had you know the back of the head had a mark and everything but the doctor said, no, nah, that was consistent with being in the water and, you know, being dragged or, you know, maybe hitting up against the docks and stuff like that. Mm. So like post-mortem type of. Right, right. Post-mortem type of injuries. Interesting. I just, again, I just, how she got there is more my question on that. I, I actually think that the, this was because of the whole um, incident with the mob, with, with Randy starting trouble mm-hmm. with the mob, trying to take over the, 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 the pride parade. And the mob mm-hmm. wasn't having it. And they warned them and told them. And even Marsha, if you watch the film, says these people are not playing. You gotta leave them alone, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, we shouldn't be messing with them. Just forget about it. I think it was mm-hmm. a byproduct of that. Yeah, I could see wow. that. So kind of like they gave her cement shoes, so to speak. Right, right. They sent the okay. message to Randy and leave, you know, leave leave it alone. You know, yeah. your neck type of thing. You know what the mob does. I actually yeah. think that's what it was. Was the parade still associated with the Genovese crime family or was it with a different one? Uh, I think it was with, what was the latest one? The guy who just went to jail, the latest one that was that Genovese that just went to jail. Uh, you mean the past not, five years. Oh, well, I don't know about the one who just went. I keep thinking about Gotti who was active. Yeah, I think then. it was with Gotti. I think so that, is that Genovese? He, I'm going to look it up I, so that we know. Might be. I used to know all that stuff so well. Before I got into true crime, I was into mafia information <laughs> like that part of true crime. No, they were two different crime families that moved mm. against each other. So could have been they were fighting over the pride parade. Ah, uh-huh. we're talking a lot of money. We're talking millions yeah. upon millions of dollars. That's mm-hmm. true. Wow. Guess, okay, so now it's my turn, right? You can do it, Denise. I believe in you. I, I, I'm going to try. So I'm grateful that Al is here because as I was writing this, I realized I was missing some information. Part of it's because there was a lack of information to find. So as I mentioned at the top, Al is the son of Jean, one of Marsha's six siblings, and the sibling closest in age to herself um, with Marsha and Jean being just 19 months apart. The rest of the siblings and their relationships are a bit complicated, to say the least. So I'm going to just give some basics for right now. And this is where I'm hoping Al can jump in and correct me as needed. So of Marsha's six siblings, only two survive, Jean and brother Robert or Bobby. Their brother Charles passed away last year and Marsha only had three full siblings or was it two? This is where it gets confusing. Um, and I believe actually it was just two. So it had to be. She only had one full sibling. Well, she had mom. She had my mother. Mm-hmm. She had Charles. Right. So I guess it was, and, and, <laughs> and she had Alfred. Remember, he wasn't a boom. He was a Mike. Well, I know. And we're going to talk to that. So she might have had two full siblings or three full siblings. We'll see. Now, originally, I thought it was Jean, Bobby and Norma. Um, and Norma just passed away in 2015. But according to Al, Norma and Bobby had a different father altogether. Thomas Matthews. And so there was only those two fathered by Thomas, correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. Now, do you know the background on this? And this is the part where I was confused because as far as I can tell, your grandparents were still married when Norma and Bobby were born or were they separated or something at the time? I, 
Uh, like I told you, I don't know the background because I discovered this doing what you do when I was going through Ancestry.com. I had no idea over the past 50 years or 50 plus years that my uncle and my aunt did not have Malcolm Michaels on their birth certificate. It says Malcolm Michaels as their father. I didn't know mm-hmm. this until I started doing what you do. And I said, something's not right. We're oh, so, that up. so you had their birth certificates. Yeah, at my uncle's birth that yeah. makes a difference because that's not on ancestry so mm-hmm. okay well that that helps with that now the only thing i can think of and i'll get to it is something with the 1950 census and we'll talk about that and that might explain some of this and i found that just right before we started by the way <laughs> okay so before i tell everyone what i found on the deceased siblings though i need to give some background otherwise this may get more confusing than it already is so Martha's father, Al's grandfather, was Malcolm Michael Sr. And according to Find a Grave, Malcolm was born in, in Bishopville, South Carolina, a very small town in Lee County, on June 1st, 1909. I mean, it, in 1880, it was a population of 144. And at the time that he was born, it, the, there was 1,500 people. So it, it grew, but it was still a small community. Malcolm, who in 1930 or more likely late 1929, married a woman from his home state of South Carolina by the name of Mary. Although calling her a woman is a bit of a stretch as she was just 15 and Malcolm was 20. I was unable to locate a marriage record, so I don't know her maiden name nor when they got married. And I don't think you found anything either on that, Al, um, based on your records. I didn't know anything about that. This is news to me. Oh, yeah. 1930 census right there. Uh, Now, this is where things get confusing. (laughs) Now, based on the records alone and based on the timeline I was able to put together, I believe that Al's uncle Charles Michaels is actually the son of Malcolm and Mary. Now, I know that's contrary to everything that Al knows, and it could be that Charles is the son of, of um, Alberta, but it's so confusing here. So I'll, I'll kind of go over it so you can see why I believe that that's up in the air and that DNA would have to determine who, who he's the son of. So I don't think it's possible unless Malcolm and Alberta were having an affair, basically, because I'm almost certain they were not married at the time that Charles was conceived, much less given birth to. So let's talk about Charles and, and feel free to fill me in. Um, most of this I got from his obituary. He was a pretty amazing, smart individual. He was born in Elizabeth in the summer of 1934. And after high school, he attended Newark College of Engineering, now known as New Jersey Institute of Technology, where he earned a degree in mechanical design. So again, super smart. Soon after he finished his schooling, Charles enlisted into the U.S. Army, serving from 1955 to 1957. Now, do you know if he was drafted out or did he enlist willingly? I don't remember. Okay. But either way, he, he did his time. And when it was up, he left the Army and never looked back. He was able to find a job at Western Electric, a job he retired from after 27 years. He was married to the love of his life for much longer than he worked and had four children and five grandchildren when he died last year in April at the age of 86, which is so impressive. I don't know what happened to Mary Michaels, the first wife of Malcolm. I suspect she might have either died in childbirth or soon after the birth of Charles, if and only if she was his mother. I do know is that in 1935, and this is why I believe that Alberta might not be the mother of Charles. Malcolm was living in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and in the directory without a wife. Every time thereafter, he always had his wife's name next to him. But I can't find him in the directory for Elizabeth or elsewhere in New Jersey before 1935 to tighten up that timeline to make sure that this is correct. Hmm. What I do know is that by 1937, Malcolm had married his second wife, Mrs. Alberta Claiborne Bowman. So my guess is they got married in either late 1935 or in 1936. Okay. But we don't have a marriage certificate. No, we can't find a marriage record. Okay. That might involve making a request unless they got married elsewhere outside of New Jersey. 
or it's a lost record, but I haven't found it yet. Okay. Yeah. I would love to have a tight timeline and know for sure, because it could be that they did get married and before Charles was born, that is Mm -hmm. definitely a likely, likely, but I, we need more information just to solidify it. But I would trust the family on that because if they're saying, yeah, that's his son (laughs) and that's her, her son, I would go with that. I wouldn't trust the family on that. Then again, (laughs) This could be part of family secrets. I, I'm only saying that because my uncle and him, like I said, I just found out that they weren't uh, Malcolm's son, a son and daughter. And they, mm-hmm. and even when asked, when I first found out and asked them, no, no, that's not true. That's not true. They kept stonewalling. So mm-hmm. I, as you know, going through these records of these people back in the day, they kept so many secrets. Oh, and yeah. so, you know, that you can't trust anything with this. Well, you just got to go with it. I would say your DNA might tell the tale, Al, because I honestly do not think Charles was Alberta's son based on the timeline that I found. Now, much like Malcolm, Alberta was married before, and she also got married in 1930. But I don't know the date. New Jersey has a um, marriage index, but they only list the year and not the date. Her first husband was Georgia native Louis B. Bowman. And while they married in New Jersey, at the time of the 1930 census, so just like in April, they lived in the Bronx. They were both 20 years old and would have their first child, a son they named Harold, in June. There is a bit of confusion with the second child. Again, <laughs> the Michaels family and believes that he was the son of Malcolm. But again, looking at the timeline, I'm more inclined to believe that he was the son of Lewis and maybe Malcolm adopted him. Um, because he was born in July, 1933. So he was even born before Charles was born. And I'm pretty sure they weren't married in 1933. Now, this next part is pure conjecture on my part. So I have no proof, but if I'm correct about Alfred or even Charles, then the following would fit. You see, I think Alberta left Lewis when she discovered that he'd been up to no good. It was more than cheating, I believe Lewis was sleeping with a young girl by the name of Lucy Holmes. And I believe this because he married her in 1934. Hmm. Lucy was, would have been only 13 years old at the time. Well, that's disturbing. Yeah. I have no doubt that Lucy saw his attentions as love and I don't want to shame her or their children and grandchildren, but it was around this time that Lewis and Alberta likely divorced around Hmm. 1935 Then Lewis married Lucy in 1936. And actually, I should say they they divorced 1935 or 1936. I'm not sure. Then Lewis married Lucy in 1936, who celebrated her 14th birthday that April. I think they likely married after April. And they had a daughter in December 1936. She gave birth to her first, and I think it was her only child with him at the age of 14. It is possible, though, that they married and got pregnant after they got married and that Louis, Louis met Lucy after he and Alberta divorced. However, I can't imagine a parent allowing a marriage of a 13-year-old girl in New Jersey unless she was already pregnant. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I don't, you don't really see that very often. Mm-hmm. Al? Uh, oh, let me unmute myself. Oh, um, let, let, me, let me be forthright and say this. Until you called me, I said to you, I haven't been on uh, Ancestry in a while, so I haven't checked my timelines. Like, mm-hmm. I used to know this, like, the back of my hand. But since I haven't been on that, a lot of this stuff I don't remember. You know, I just don't right. remember. I might have this backwards, and it might be proof on my timeline. I told you that Alfred was really a Michael, and he used the name Bowman. It mm-hmm. might be Alfred was really a Bowman and used the name Michael. Yes, I think that is because yeah. he... Because I saw both. I saw Michaels for some time, but he did on his um, death record. It was Bowman. Right. So he, I, that's what I think. I, I just got it backwards, but I think my timeline proved that that is true. Okay. That he might've been Bowman, and, but he might. Which would mean that since he was born in 1933, I think it does fit with the whole Charles would be the son of um, Malcolm's first wife, probably. Listen, right now you're trying to get me uninvited from the family cookout when I come back home with this. Well, no, we, we, we're well, not going to do that. Well, and I'm a little people are going to hunt us down, Denise. <laughs> okay, I don't want to keep going on that point, but he, hey, no, no matter what, they are 
family. It doesn't matter the blood. They're still family. No, no, no. I agree. I'm just joking, but. <laughs> okay. And tell us more about the cookout afterwards. Okay. Anyhow. <laughs> um, so regardless of the timeline. Okay. So let me go back. So it does appear though. I, I do strongly believe that this is what led to the end of the marriage between Alberta and Lewis. He was fooling around with this 13 year old child got her pregnant and they had to divorce. So he would marry her. It might be, I might be wrong. I would need the birth. I would need a little bit more information to know for sure. But regardless, Alberta was now a single mother after her divorce from Lewis with two kids. I believe, like I said earlier, I believe she and Malcolm married either in late 1935 or more likely in 1936. And like I said, I know they were together by 1937, as evidenced by the Elizabeth, New Jersey City Directory that year. Interestingly enough, Alberta and Malcolm wouldn't have any children until 1944 with the birth of Al's mom, Jean. But I guess they had three little children in their home, so I don't blame them for spacing things. (laughs) They already had their hands full. Who wants to add more kids to that mix right away, especially as you're merging two families? After Jean came, Marcia, followed by Bobby, then Norma. Now, that brings me to the 1950 census, because as Al shared with us, Bobby and Norma had different fathers. So in 1950, I found Malcolm Michael Sr. in two different census records. In one, he was with his family with Alberta and all listed. In another record, he was living with his mother and his stepfather. So I'm guessing they must have separated at some point. And then she had the children with Thomas Matthews. And then they later reconciled because after the night, by a certain point, they were back together until um, Malcolm Sr. died in 1969. I also found something else interesting in the 1950 census. Perhaps you have some information on this, Al. And I'm not saying this with any degree of judgment, and I don't want to upset anybody, but I found your uncle Alfred in the 1950 census living in Mercer County, New Jersey at the New Jersey State Mental Hospital. He was 16 at the time. Do you know anything about that? No, I don't know anything about that. I know after he got back from the war, he was in Lyons uh, Mental Institute for a while, mm-hmm. but I never knew beforehand at the age of 16 that he was in a mental institution. Yeah, it, I was kind of surprised. I mean, because soon after that, he, he was okay for, you know, a long time. And then he went and served in the war and we'll get to that in a minute. But, but let me share a little bit about the hospital he was at, which was probably the one it was in Trenton and is today known as the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. The hospital was founded in 1848 by none other than Dorothea Dix and was the first mental health hospital in New Jersey. This is the same hospital where mathematician John Forbes Nash, the man portrayed in A Beautiful Mind, was committed 11 years after Alfred in 1961. Now, while Alfred was a patient, there was another notable patient who he hopefully never had to interact with, much less see. His name was Howard Unruh. On September 6, 1949, Unruh engaged in one of the first mass shootings in our country's history, and it would be called the Walk of Death. On that morning of September 6th, he left his Camden home after eating breakfast. In his possession, he had a pistol, an eight-round magazine, and more ammunition. He approached a delivery truck and attempted to shoot the driver, missing by just a couple of inches. The delivery driver tried to warn residents but couldn't reach people fast enough. Unruh continued walking down the street, shooting at his neighbors. Some he clearly targeted and others that happened by him. He went into businesses to shoot people he wanted. He went into people's homes. The shooting rampage resulted in three being injured and the deaths of 13. The oldest being 68 and the youngest two. Oh my God. And And he he was sent to a mental hospital rather than prison. Well, they sent him there first because they thought he was insane and they ended up diagnosing him with schizophrenia Mm -hmm. and he spent the rest of his life at the hospital. He died there in 2009. Wow. So he was there a very long time. Wow. Now, unlike Unruh, Alfred wasn't a violent schizophrenic and was able to leave the hospital by 1951. I know this because in November, 1951, he enlisted in the U S army during the Korean war. 
and where he was likely sent and probably why he needed to go get some mental health services after he returned, like Al had just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, He served three years. So that's a long time to be serving. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of part one covering Marsha P. Johnson. Next week on August 18th, we will pick up where we left off discussing Marsha P. Johnson with her nephew, Al Michaels, and going up the tree. It's a fascinating tree with lots of mysteries still to this day, and lots of question marks that we had at the end. And you don't want to miss the end when we learn a little bit about a family member who may have been um, associated with voodoo. Thanks for joining us where murder and family meet. If you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.